Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. I guess many of us assume that commercial interests as well as law enforcement bodies are scraping information from the internet for their own purposes. How far this has gone and what regulations are in place to protect us from misuse of technology like collective intelligence, AI and facial recognition software and the like is still an open question though. Hannah Ryan from BuzzFeed News has been investigating the police use of a product called Clearview AI and she's joining us by phone to share us what she knows. Um, Thanks very much. Hi, Hannah. Hey, guys. So, yeah, introduce us to Clearview AI. Okay, sure. So this uh, fairly creepy company um, was founded by an, actually an Australian guy over in the US. And what it claims to have done is to have collected billions of images of people's faces from the internet, so that's from Facebook, LinkedIn, all over the internet, put them into a big database and then created a tool that lets you scan that database and identify basically any person on the street um, and, and find out who they are, so find out their identity from that big pool of images. And so based on the, on the digging you've done, Hannah, what do we know about who is using this technology and why? Well, it's actually really interesting. The company was secretive. The lid was blown off it uh, last month, actually, sorry, in January. So we've only sort of just learned of its existence. It has made several claims um, about who it's working with. Initially, it said that it was working with law law enforcement in Australia. But then um, a bunch of police forces either denied that they were working with Clearview or um, refused to kind of answer the question. BuzzFeed News obtained data last week which shows that actually accounts have been created in four different police forces in Australia. So that's the AFP, Queensland, Victoria and South Australia police forces. Um, So that's how we know that. But prior to this data being obtained, we actually didn't know anything about who was using it in Australia because there was no transparency around that. In your article in um, BuzzFeed, which people can... Uh, look up and we can share as well you highlight that the company is making pretty bold claims um, maybe not, not all of the claims are true um, but you know how likely is it that this company is doing and has done what it's claiming that it is so it seems pretty um, it seems pretty true that it's amassed like a huge number of images and it's done so probably by violating terms of service of, of platforms like Facebook because people, when they put their images, you know, photos of themselves up on Facebook for profile pictures, um, they don't intend for that to be used to sort of be scraped into a huge pot and database of images. Um, but that's what this company has done. And that means that the, um, the likelihood of, of it being able to provide an accurate match is quite high because obviously the more photos that you can put in a database match for someone's identity, the higher chance you have of, of getting an accurate match because you just have more kind of data that's inputted there. Um, but it's really hard to trust a number of things that the company says because my colleagues in the U.S. have proved that some of those claims have been misleading. So, for example, in um, in 
in marketing material that the company used, it, it claimed to have helped the NYPD solve a murder investigation, um, which later proved to not be true. So it seems like the founder is prone to exaggeration, um, and it's really hard to evaluate what's true and what's not, um, given that there's this veil of secrecy over the, over the company and over who its clients are. And do you have much of a sense, Hannah, as to whether the founder, Juan Tontat, is or, or has actually engaged with um, you know, police departments in Australia, or is this kind of a technology or a platform that they've taken up sort of on their own, really, and had a bit of a look to see what it can provide them with in terms of identifying individuals from a database of photos? Well, it's such an interesting question. Obviously, that was a question on everyone's lips as soon as this story broke back in January. Like, you know, are our police forces routinely using this? Because mm. it, it raises a lot of questions about privacy and consent and all of that. Um, so I, for example, put in an, a Freedom of Information request for the AFP, which was pretty, you know, expansive. It would have captured any communications from the company, you know, trying to market to the AFP and that sort of thing. And a number of other journalists put in similar requests. And we all got back a straight-up response that there was no documents at all. So from that, it seems like Clearview hasn't sort of officially approached the AFP. It hasn't um, struck, you know, a formal agreement or a contract or anything like that. But I guess the issue is that um, it's, it's just easy for staff of government agencies to apply for access to that tool. So our, our data that we obtained showed that there are a number of um, employees with the AFP who signed up for this and run a number of searches, and it seems like their seniors don't actually know about it because if you've got a .gov.au email address, you can sign up for a free trial just on the internet. Um, so it's very easy to access and you wouldn't necessarily um, need to run it up the chain to get that access and you wouldn't need to exchange any money. So it does seem like there's been an adoption of it, um, perhaps at more junior levels within these police forces. Although I should point out Queensland is by far the leader of using Clearview AI in Australia. It's run over 900 searches. Um, it's got over 20 users who are registered with it. And the Queensland Police Service was, didn't confirm or deny that they use it. So it's possible that in Queensland it has been sort of formally adopted as a tool that the, the police use, but it seems like in the other states in the AFP that um, senior people within the police forces don't actually know about what their employees are doing with this. But you don't know for sure that it is formal use? No, no, no. Um, they wouldn't confirm or deny that. They simply said in a statement to me that facial recognition is one of many tools that police can use in investigations. Hannah Ryan's with us. She's with BuzzFeed News. And we're talking about um, a company called Clearview AI, uh, which has um, produced facial recognition software that um, is, is being used by we don't know who, um, but <laughs> we suspect that um, it is starting to be used in a more wide way. And I, I mean, you cite ethical concerns with this particular product. I think many people assume this stuff is going on, um, but we, we didn't know about this company you said in, until January. Are there likely to be others in this space too, Hannah? Well, there's definitely other companies which sort of market um, facial recognition tools. So, for example, Amazon has developed one called Recognition with a K, um, and there are, there are definitely other companies that have these tools. Um, but what's unique about Clearview is just the sheer amount of data that it's vacuumed up from the internet. So they claim to have 3 billion images in there. That's 
that's an incredible number of images. If it's true, it's likely to have, you know, multiple images of both you and me that we've uploaded to the internet for completely different purposes. Um, so there's a real concern about Australians' data being used without their consent. And we've had a debate in the last year or so about facial recognition um, used by governments because the, there was an intergovernmental agreement with something called the capability, which was going to be this tool that pulled everyone's driver's licence images and then all the governments from around Australia could run facial recognition testing on that. But the difference there is that a, it was being debated out in the open and there was, you know, there was going to be a process of law to decide whether that um, happened or not. And secondly, those images were government images. So there was a debate about whether you're really consenting to be used for facial recognition when you provide an image for your driver's licence. But at least we knew what images were in the database. This, like, there's just no transparency at all on what images are in there and um, there's no transparency on the accuracy of the, of the matching service and there's no transparency around what the safeguards are. So imagine if, this is the worst case scenario, imagine if police are investigating a serious crime, they run a facial identification test and they come up with actually the wrong person. There's a, there's a false match, a false positive. The consequences for that person could be pretty severe. You know, they could be arrested, they could be interviewed, they could be charged, they could even be brought to trial. So there's a real question mark over, over the accuracy of this stuff and, and the kind of safeguards and transparency that should be should be used. And I've read, um, not sort of specifically in relation to Clearview AI, but facial recognition technology in general can be less accurate um, with particular sections of the population. For example, I understand it's, it's not as good at detecting or matching kind of darker skinned faces, people of colour and so on, who can more easily be misidentified by these types of technologies. Um, yeah, that tends to be the case. Yeah, and, and I mean, the founder of Clearview AI as well, I'm not sure how much this has been kind of confirmed, but has been photographed with figures kind of on the far right of politics and so on mm. in, in the United States. Is there any sense that this software or the way it's being used, um, is it all kind of ideologically motivated? Well, there's no there's no real sense that it, that he's got a kind of political motivation in developing this software. I think he's he's really uh, you know a Silicon Valley style entrepreneur um, trying to trying to make money off this. I think the problem is the lack of kind of ethical framework around it. Um, there's been no commitment really to to developing this in an ethical way, and just the number of mistruths and misleading statements that have come out. So, for example, they said initially that they were only um, being used by government agencies, by law enforcement agencies. But my colleagues in the US um, obtained data that showed, you know, over 2,000 organisations with active accounts, and many of them were private organisations. So you had Macy's on the list, for example. Um, and that's just, that's just an example of where the kind of the public statements and the reality have had a mismatch. And so you've got to ask questions about the commitment um, of this company to, to ethics and to, you know, properly debating whether we want this kind of technology in use. And, I mean, this is global technology and, and even mm. BuzzFeed's investigations have been global, but Australia's um, Privacy Commission is having a look at it, is it? And what can it do? Yeah, so the Privacy Commissioner um, on the federal level said in the wake of the initial stories that um, she was going to look into this. I think the problem is that the Privacy Commissioner has sort of limited powers and, and limited resourcing, really. It's um, not by any fault of the Commissioner, but it can be a bit of a toothless tiger 
uh, when it comes to kind of oversight and enforcement. Um, I, I mean, hopefully that's not the case in this situation, but, yeah, it's, um, there's a limit on the kind of mechanisms that are available to the Privacy Commissioner. So I think this is something that's really going to be thrashed out in... Um, in the sort of the public sphere and, and pub, you know, the public kind of having their say on, on whether they think this is okay or not. Because at the moment, the situation is that we don't really have answers. You know, for example, from the Queensland Police Service, we just don't know if this is, you know, an official contract that they've entered, if they're paying to use it, that sort of thing, and what they're using it for. And, I mean, you've sort of broken this story in terms of the way law enforcement in Australia um, is engaging with Clearview AI. Is this a story you're going to continue to to follow and and do follow-up stories on, Hannah? Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, the AFP is actually before Senate estimates this morning, so hoping we might get a few questions on that. Um, Interestingly, they they were also before the um, Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security last Friday, I think, after our story broke. And they were asked there, you know, what what's going on, um, and the commissioner said that they would have to do some digging. So that's a promising sign that they're planning to sort of do an internal investigation about what's going on, um, but we'll continue to sort of shine the spotlight on the other police services, you know, especially Queensland, because over 900 searches, that's pretty serious. Um, and to not have even confirmed either way if this is something that the police service is condoning um, is pretty lacklustre in terms of a public response. Hannah Ryan's with uh, BuzzFeed News. Um, we'll keep we'll keep watching your feed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, yeah, you can catch her report on BuzzFeed News here locally in Australia, but also um, check out more globally. Triple ah. As we head into cooler weather, it's great to have Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth back on Triple R. He's our monthly commentator on all things environmental. And there's a lot to cover this morning, not just post bushfires, but also climate change action. And um, welcome back to Triple R, Cam. Yeah, thanks, Kalia. And uh, I mean, we heard recently that uh, the Norwegian oil giant Equinor, which has been um, scoping the Great Australian Bight um, for some time now, is has decided to pull out. Yes, this is fantastic news. Um, they're the third company that have pulled out um, of this deep water offshore oil drilling proposal. So BP and Chevron have already left. So really exciting news that now uh, Equinor have also left the project. And so what was it that led them to that decision, Cam? Well, they're saying that it was basically that they decided that it was uh, not commercially competitive, quote-unquote, but there was a pretty amazing community campaign that just has been unbelievably determined. You know, local councils along the South Australian coast, traditional owners, the surfing community, the fishing community, you know, it's been massive mobilisation. So often companies need to kind of put up a bit of cover when they leave a controversial project like this, but there's no doubt the community campaign had a huge impact. So is that the end of drilling off the the Great Australian Bight or could another company come in and kind of fill that void? Yes, they could. So uh, another company might take the permit that exists. Um, so it's it's in federal waters, so it will be a federal permit. Um, I think the investment environment is really shifting. And part of what's going on there is these sites are more than 350 kilometres offshore and they're in waters two and a half kilometres deep. So really technically complex and with a really high cost and a very high risk of oil spill. So, you know, maybe there's someone waiting in the wings to step in and take that permit, but 
um, it would be a very brave company, I think, that would step in there at this point in the game. And you said shift then. Um, is it a sign that maybe the the world is starting to shift from oil dependence as well, that these types of projects aren't commercially viable or is it really the, the technical nature of, of these particular drilling sites? Absolutely. I think the world is changing. So Equinor is two-thirds owned by the Norwegian government, which has a massive kind of futures fund. I think it's something like $17 billion Australian dollars. It's announced that it's divesting from fossil fuels in general, uh, and we're witnessing that around the world with many of the large investors you know, basically shifting out of fossil fuels. I think um, there's growing concern around exposure to long-term carbon risks. So if you invest in a gas field or, a, you know, oil drilling or a coal mine, and then basically as carbon prices come in or carbon policy regimes change, you might be left with additional costs or, in effect, a stranded asset because you then can't sell the product that you're producing because the market has shrunk. And I think there's also a thing going on. Um, you know, we've got access already to a lot of the easy oil and gas around the world, and now we're going into what they call the frontier regions, you know, the, the high mountains in the Andes, the, Equi- uh, the Equatorial Basin in Africa, and deep sea oil there, and uh, the north shelf of Alaska. And I think that investors are particularly nervous about investing in that sort of project, and that's what this was, which was in such deep water so far from shore. And, I mean, since we spoke to you last, Cam, companies, including BP, have come forth and put their support behind net zero emissions. Some have put a date on that of the middle of the century. Um, we've heard that also from from the ALP federally. Um, is that also kind of um, part of the shift that, that we're starting to see? Absolutely. I mean, our federal government has failed comprehensively and just keeps failing every day to act on climate change. So what's happening, and and, and this is happening around the world, look at the United States as well, the Trump administration. So what's happening is that into the, the gap of leadership, the states and the territories are stepping in and business is stepping in. So many of the larger businesses, including ones that have traditionally invested heavily in fossil fuels, coal, oil or gas, are now actually shifting out of that. Um, it's, it's partly a function of the lack of, of, of leadership by the federal government and, and, and the Trump administration and so on. Uh, but it's also just that people realise that the clock is ticking and it's good to see, for instance, uh, this month Azali Stegall, the independent from New South Wales, will put her legislation which would commit Australia to net zero emissions by mid-century and more and more states and territories and more and more jurisdictions around the world, including the United Kingdom, are signing up to these kind of targets, which is fantastic because it indicates political will. But if you look at the science, 2050 is way too late. So now we're caught in this interesting point of tension between we're starting to get action uh, across the board in spite of the laggards like the Australian government and the US government, and yet this action as legislated is too late. So now we're coming coming into the really kind of difficult pointy part of bringing those targets forward so that we get action sooner rather than mid-century. It's really interesting, Cam, because as you note, a range of states in Australia and and around the world are acting um, with more sort of ambitious targets than national governments are. And and Zali Stegall has put her climate change bill forward. We've got a a Victorian Climate Change Act in this state as well. And I understand both those were kind of modelled off the UK version where um, essentially a bipartisan approach to climate change and uh, emissions reduction has been in place for some time. Do you think this 
this could lead to finally some consensus at, at the federal level? Well, if you listen to some of the rhetoric from some of the coalition backbenchers in the National Party, then probably not. And I don't know if Starley has the numbers as yet, but I think on the crossbench, there's a real sense that, well, we need to act. Obviously, the Greens are there already. Obviously, the ALP is getting there, you know, so hopefully the numbers exist. Um, I think that some of the mainstream media is still very partisan in its reporting, particularly the Murdoch press often, you know, giving platform to deniers. We're certainly not into the space where we're now in, a, you know, a sense of bipartisanship, but I feel that in Australia we are finally getting closer, particularly on the back of this summer's fires because everyone, you know, is starting to join the dots and realise that climate change is making our fire seasons worse. And this is happening with only one degree of warming and if we're on a trajectory towards three or four degrees warming or beyond, which is what we are at present, you know, that's not going to be a pretty place to live. So I think that, you know, there's this kind of coalescing sense of bipartisanship joining the dots and the need to act in the community, in the business community and certainly amongst the states and territories. 27 past nine, uh, we're speaking with Cam Walker. And if you could just kind of step to one side or another, Cam, we're starting to lose you on that line. I'm speaking with Cam about all things kind of climate action at the moment. And um, again, to sort of stay in Victoria, I suppose, our Climate Change Act is in place. And uh, what's the word on the street around the kind of interim target? So this is the stepping stone towards Victoria achieving net zero by mid-century, Cam. I know that's where the focus has now shifted. Yes, it has. So we have a, a voluntary emissions target which um, the government set maybe two years ago, and they're on the, you know, they're very close to achieving that. But really, the sixty-four dollar question will be the twenty twenty-five and the twenty thirty targets. It's essential we get these right, and by right I mean science-based, not based on political expediency. Within the next month, the government is expected to announce its submissions. It had an independent panel that advised them, um, and they said, you know, if if you want to have a chance of doing our fair share of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, remembering we're already at about 1.1, we need to set very deep emission reduction targets. Now, they were talking about a figure of 67% by 2030, which would, would it, it signal a really profound decarbonisation of our economy. The good news is we can do it. The good news is that transition is already happening because we know that the, the Hayeswood Power Station has already shut and we have the Victorian Renewable Energy Target in place, which is driving investment in renewables. But really, you know, a lot of the media is getting a bit hysterical about this. The, the coalition, we're not really clear where they will sit on the issue as yet, but we have a month to influence the Premier, Dan Andrews, to listen to the science, to do the right thing and to set deep emission reduction targets. And so if we are to kind of step up our action to, to meet those targets, what might that look like in, in a practical sense, Cam? What sorts of things would we, we need to see happen? Well, the stationary energy sector is our largest single emitter of emissions, so we need to basically start talking about the T word, that transition is happening. The government needs to accept that and it needs to put in place a just transition authority or a minister for transition or something like that and actually seize the issue rather than kind of working around it. We need a much higher Victorian renewable energy target. We need to do a bunch of stuff to improve our electricity grid to make sure that we can get the new input renewables, which by definition will be diverse in nature, produced across the state, wind in the west, solar in the northwest and so on. We need to get all that going and then we need to accept that the second largest um, 
sector of emissions in the state is transport. So we need to start to get our public investment in infrastructure right, which would mean things like shelving the North East Link, which is a mega road project, and getting on with building the Metro 2 tunnel, which would complement the existing Metro tunnel. So, you know, they're two kind of key things that make sense to pick the, the, the sectors that are very large. Agriculture produces a lot um, of greenhouse gases, but of course you're talking tens of thousands of individual farms. So go to the sectors where you can buy suitable government policy and suitable government support. You can really start to drive emissions reductions. And uh, you mentioned there agriculture and I suppose sort of land in general, which is um, where we can find some of those emission savings, but also where a lot of the sort of offsetting happens. Um, do you see that with regards to, I suppose, biodiversity post fires and the the rebuilding effort that's happening across the state or needs to happen could kind of play together with emissions reductions, Cam? Oh, absolutely. Um, Mount Nash Forest, which we have to the east of Melbourne, are some of the most carbon-dense forests on the planet. They've been really hammered this summer yet again, and they're being logged very heavily and very unsustainably. So managing these forests for them to become old growth rather than regrowth is part of that process of creating a carbon store and Victoria could do very well on the international market in terms of carbon markets and protecting our forests if it wanted to so there are economic benefits there but of course there's enormous environmental benefits and water production benefits that's where our drinking water comes from primarily so you know it makes sense to look at how we manage our forests post these fires and we know that the wet forests have been very badly impacted some experts are saying up to a century for them to recover. So we need to kind of move from this, you know, intense resource extraction model, a lot of which goes towards pulp rather than timber, and we need to rethink how we produce our timber. We certainly need to think about where we source our pulp from, and old forests and, and 70 to 100-year-old forests aren't logical places to generate pulp from, from in the 21st century, and we need to also think about the carbon implications of protecting our forests. Well, it's, um, you know, there's a lot to do, but it's uh, good that you could sort of identify some of the practical stuff that's, uh, I suppose, in the very near future for not only Victoria, but also Australia and, and globally. And uh, when we speak to you again in a month's time, who knows, we might have a technology roadmap from the government to speak about as well as um, Zali Stegel's bill. So um, looking forward to that. Yes, we might as well. well hopefully we will. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Zali's uh, bit of legislation is treated once it gets into federal parliament. And I would really urge people, um, if they're interested in climate change, to look into our week of action that we're going to have just before the Victorian emission reduction targets are announced. If you just do a web search for Friend the Earth Act on Climate, you'll find the details really easily. Thanks, Cam. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And there's a kind of double whammy happening right now for migrant workers to Australia. The COVID-19 coronavirus travel bans and the economic effects of the summer bushfires. And the China travel ban has been extended a third time. And now a travel ban is in place for Iran as well. And we're also seeing visa extensions for backpackers volunteering for the bushfire recovery effort also being offered. And these policies in particular, the two of them are creating a challenging environment for 
many migrant workers wanting to resume their jobs or studies in Australia. And to better understand why these workers are particularly affected, Matt Kunkel joins us. He's Director of Migrant Workers Centre, and it's great to have you on Triple R, Matt. Great, thanks for being here. And so we'll start with um, COVID-19, Matt, and we've heard a lot about, you know, of course, travel plans being disrupted and universities taking a pretty serious financial hit if international students can't make it here and so on. But we haven't really heard a lot of people talking about um, the impact of the travel ban on migrant workers. Why is that? Uh, I think it's because there's a bit of a misunderstanding about exactly what a temporary migrant worker is in Australia. So this ban only covers temporary migrant workers and tourists. It doesn't cover permanent residents or um, people who have got their families with permanent residency. But the visa system is such in Australia that there's very few ways to become a permanent migrant. So many of these temporary migrants, so-called temporary migrants, have actually been here for four, eight or even 12 years. They've got community built in Australia, they've got mortgages, they've got long-term jobs in Australia, but because there's no pathway to become a permanent resident or a citizen for them, they are stuck on this merry-go-round of temporary migration. So that's why we've got this situation where this ban only covers people who have a temporary visa, which is about 10% of the workforce. Now, not all of those are from China, of course, but um, China is you know, quite heavily represented because of our close ties with that country. And do we know the extent then of how many people might be caught up in this travel ban? It's hard to tell exactly how many are caught up because obviously some were some temporary or many temporary migrants from China are and were already here. But the timing of this outbreak around Lunar New Year means that many temporary migrants had taken the time to go back and visit their families back in China um, and were stuck there because of the timing of the outbreak. So it's very difficult to get a, a firm grasp on just how many people are locked back there. But we've been speaking to scores of temporary migrants who are now coming to us saying, well, wh- how do I pay my rent? How do I pay my mortgage? What about my job? I don't have leave. I can't, um, I can't cover this time away. Uh, and when I think, as you said at the top of the, the segment, there's now, I think we're in our fifth week of this of this travel ban, so it's becoming very, very difficult for these um, for these people to um, to meet their obligations. And so, what do you say to them, Matt, when they're coming to you with these questions and and problems, and I guess the financial burden of potentially not being able to come back to the country or not knowing when they can? How do you manage that? What what do you say to them? Well, it's very difficult too because the industrial relations landscape doesn't provide them very many options to protect their employment. So if you don't have leave, if you don't have um, a, a boss that's, you know, sympathetic to this this issue, um, or if you're a casual worker, um, there's very little industrial levers that can be pulled to to save your job and keep your livelihood so it's really we're taking things by on a case-by-case basis and more preparing for a time where the workers can come back to Australia where we can collectively organize them together to um, to push a response um, both industrial and um, and financial and how much information do you have at hand about how long the travel bans might apply? Because we've had the, I think I said that, you know, it's the third time that the travel bans been extended. It's now been extended to Iran as well. And we're hearing, uh, the last statement I heard from the chief medical officer was that it, we weren't going to see travel bans apply to every country in the world or anything like that. But do you know how long these kinds of bans will, will be in place? It's 
It's hard to say. And look, the World Health Organization, who's the one at the very top of this monitoring the, the global situation, doesn't recommend these types of global, uh, not global bans, but even travel bans, bilateral travel bans. So, I mean, we've got a chief medical officer in Australia who's taking a different line to the people that are actually monitoring this on a global level, which is interesting. And it actually calls into question what the government's real intents are about this, about this ban. Because the coronavirus doesn't discriminate on people on the basis of what visa they've got. It doesn't know and it doesn't care. Um, so why does the government discriminate on that basis? And the other piece of news, I guess, that came out um, just today is that was reported that the Border Force Commissioner has actually given 100 exemptions, uh, 99, sorry, exemptions to this travel ban, um, and they've gone to uh, so-called business leaders from China. So even though we're told on one hand that this travel ban for temporary migrants out of China is essential and it's a necessary health measure, um, it appears that if you're rich enough or you're high enough up in business, you can grease the wheels and get, um, get things done. And as I mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of universities, particularly those that are very reliant on international student intakes, uh, still in a state of uncertainty around what the next uh, weeks or the next months look like in terms of enrolments. And I think that the University of Melbourne has reportedly said it will provide some funding to help students through this sort of process. So I guess um, that's a particular cohort of, of um, temporary migrants coming into the country. But do you think there, there should be some kind of uh, assistance or mechanism to allow um, temporary migrant workers to access some kind of funding while they're in this state of limbo? Look, I mean, what, what we're calling for is for the government to allow people holding temporary visas to come in to the country and mm. go through the same health checks as everybody else has been through. So there, there's no doubt thousands of people that need to come back into the country um, to resume their lives or their studies. And if they had been allowed back in at the 1st of February, they would have gone through their two-week period and they would have been back at university for the last two weeks. So they would have been back at work for the last two weeks. So it, again, it just calls into question about exactly why ban temporary migrants and it comes down to in, in my view um, about building this culture of control and, and wanting to be seen in, in charge of something particularly after the, the horror bushfire season that, that ScoMo's had. Um, he wants to be seen to be doing something but it's really not doing anything but destroying these people's lives and livelihoods who I don't know about you but I'd struggle to go four or five or six or even seven weeks without pay um, and I certainly wouldn't be able to, to cover off all my responsibilities so while it's great the universities are saying that they might you know compensate students um, there's a financial reason for that they yeah. need these international students but what about all these workers who can't get back to their lives as well that's that's a real thing that the government needs to consider how they're going to deal with the financial costs that they're their impact um putting on these workers. And this might be the first time anyone's hearing these kinds of views, Matt. We're speaking with Matt Kunkel, he's director over at the Migrant Workers Centre. So it might be sort of sinking in that there's this whole cohort of people caught up in the travel ban that normally would be here working in Australia. And is that sort of two-step process that the government's put forward that oh, if you go from one of the affected countries, um, stop off somewhere else for a couple of weeks and then come to Australia and do the quarantine. I think it's like a quarantine process here as well. Um, is that is that working for, for some of the workers that you're speaking with or is that not really um, an, an avenue? Who's, who, I mean, who's got the money for that? <laughs> um, I mean, it's not just... Um, you know, travel is difficult as it is. There are other countries that are having different responses in the region. Um, I mean, some are 
trying that, I guess, but it's not something that's available to everybody just to jet set around the world to try and, you know, pick up what are already quite... I mean, temporary workers are already... Temporary migrant workers in some cases, you know, the students and, and backpackers are in quite insecure work in many cases. So not knowing where their next paycheck's coming from and also not really cashed up in the same way that people might think um, think they are. So I mean there's a huge there's a huge impact on this and the two step process, you know, is I think I, I think it's spoken about a lot, but I'm not really sure just exactly how many people have the the means to, to actually make that happen. And uh, I mean it is brave, I think, for for you to be calling for the travel ban to be lifted. I mean we had the first uh, Australian death from this recorded over the weekend as well. Um, are you getting any response to to your call so far? Well, yeah. I mean, the the, the people who are affected by it are obviously very appreciative of, of us trying to do something. But I mean, just picking up on that. I mean, it's not just you know, it's very sad for that um, that person and their family that they've they've passed away from this. But what we're also seeing out in the community is a wave of xenophobic violence against Chinese-looking people. So not even just Chinese people, but Chinese-looking people are being bashed in the streets. And there was a story that was sent to me by um, a friend of mine this morning um, who a man had to go through facial reconstruction surgery because he was bashed up about um, bringing the virus into Australia. So, I mean, this the reason we're calling for this is it's affecting so many people, um, not just those stuck in, in China, um, but those people who are here um, suffering at the hands of people who um, have been whipped up into this xenophobic fear against um, people bringing the disease to Australia. And, and it feels like this year's been um, really you know, occupied with a lot of stories on COVID-19, but also, of course, the bushfire crisis that's um, gripped the country um, for, for months, really. And there have been some new visa changes that kind of impact on migrant workers, particularly backpackers as well, around um, the bushfire recovery effort. Can you um, talk about what those are and, and your take on that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, these working holiday makers are some of the temporary migrants that we've been just talking about. So the same people who we're not prepared to let into the country are the same people that the government wants to send into these bushfire-affected communities to, to do volunteer work and rebuild rebuild our, our communities. So um, it's a real... It's a, it's a real double-edged sword, I guess. I mean, we've got a situation where working holidaymakers are struggling to find work in the regions because um, of the bushfires. So, you know, there's not a lot of farm jobs out there at the moment. A lot of people were, um, had to, to, you know, kill their livestock or their crops have been destroyed. Um, so people are looking for work. And working holidaymakers need to do 88 days in the regions to get that extra year to stay in Australia for another year of working holiday. And what the government's saying is, well, if you go and do this work in a bushfire area, um, then you can get that extra year. So what we're doing is effectively tying people's labour, unpaid <laughs> unpaid labour, which 88 days is a long time to work without any money, um, to getting an, an additional year to stay in the country. And we just think that that's um, it's wrong. But more than that, it's dangerous because we know that bushfire recovery areas are very hazardous zones. Um, they're often littered with asbestos or PFAS or other carcinogenic materials. Scientists are coming out and saying that the soil itself is contaminated. So if you've got people digging holes for fences and all the rest of it, we, we're saying that this work, it's important work, but it's also hazardous work, and it needs to be performed by people who are properly trained, supervised and qualified to do this work. And ultimately, it should be, it should be getting paid as well. 
Yeah, and, I mean, and, and on that, it's really, I mean, the question is, is it's being couched as, well, get into the country, get into the community and help rebuild. But it, the, if you aren't getting paid to do this work, how are you going to invest any money in the local economy to rebuild the economy? So what the government's really looking for here is to have its cake and eat it too. I mean, the government's, it's the government's responsibility to pay for a proper recovery process, and that should include paying the people that are doing the work to recover these communities so badly damaged by fires. Yeah, and you, and you are calling for you know, proper financial support for the bushfire recovery, and I suppose we've just seen you know, tens of thousands of volunteers, I, I don't know their visa status, but you know, um, that have been putting out the fires for, for much of this time as well, and I suppose there's you know, a whole lot of open questions about especially if that's an ongoing situation that Australia faces as bushfire seasons uh, get worse, um, how we actually are going to fund this stuff. Well that's, well, that's right. I mean, and really we should be having, you know, this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but we should be having a look at those fossil fuel companies that are profiting off climate change, which is a big driver of these fires. Um, make them pay for it. I mean, they've done very well for a very long time. Um, it might be time for those, um, those people at the very top of that fossil fuel industry to start paying their dues. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Um, I think you'll be providing a whole lot of thoughtful comments for people to kind of chew over, Matt. Um, all the best with your work. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, Matt Kunkel, he's director over at the Migrant Workers Centre. And I think some, yeah, some different ideas in there that we haven't really heard much of, the effect of COVID-19 and the travel bans on migrant workers and also uh, the change in visa um, opportunities for people volunteering in the bushfire recovery. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.